What I'm here to talk about is the life of a case. Now this is important. Uh, you will focus on this topic in civil procedure. The other courses that you're going to be taking this semester and this first year are going to be dealing mostly with substantive law, contracts towards criminal law, property. And those are the substantive areas that defines people's rights, etc. But civil procedure is that subject that focuses on the process of litigating those rights when a dispute arises. And it's very important to understand how that process works. So you're going to learn about that from start to finish in your civil procedure class. So what I'm going to do today is give you an overview from start to finish as to what that looks like. And we're going to start with what typically is the beginning of a dispute is there is some type of incident. So we'll keep it simple in this situation. We'll talk about a car accident. Very simple uh, situation where you have two people colliding on a road and there's a dispute that arises. There's injuries, personal injuries, property damage. So we have the issue of what do we do about this? Now someone who's injured in that situation is probably going to want to seek legal recourse to recover for that. They can do that through the vehicle of a lawsuit. So we'll style that person as the plaintiff and then we'll have a person that they sue as a defendant. Now, the questions that you're going to have to look at in civil procedure are many-fold, but some of them include who can I sue? Where can this be done? What am I suing for? How do we do this? Now, and there's, you might as well throw in there, when can this be done? Now, the issue of what we're going to be suing for is going to be the topic that you'll be focusing on in your substantive law classes. So in a car accident, we're going to have a classic case of negligence, or maybe the person was driving recklessly, or they may have intentionally tried to target you with their vehicle. Then it goes up to different levels. But that's all within the realm of torts. So you would be studying the what to assert in this claim in your torts course. But the question that you're concerned with in civil procedure and that the question that you'll have to be aware of if you are the attorney for the plaintiff as well as if you're the attorney for the defendant is where can I do this? As you just learned, there are many different jurisdictions, different court systems throughout the United States. Every state, the District of Columbia, the territories, they all have judicial systems. And then there's the federal judicial system as well. So, with this car accident, where among all of those places can this go? It's not necessarily just one place, it may be multiple places. But you have to know as the lawyer, where can I go? Can I go into Virginia State Court? Can I go into Wyoming Federal Court? Maybe it's both of them. Maybe it's neither one. Same thing as the defendant's lawyer. When your client is sued in a particular place, you as their lawyer need to be able to say, you can't sue us here, you've chosen the wrong location. You need to sue us somewhere else, so this case needs to be dismissed. So part of where can this case be brought is going to be the issue of federal versus state court. Now the state courts, generally speaking, are courts of general jurisdiction. They can hear cases of all kinds, with certain exceptions, where there are some federal law claims that are exclusively uh, tied to the jurisdiction of the federal courts. 
So you don't have to worry as much about that right now. Generally speaking, state courts can hear all kinds of cases. Federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. What limited jurisdiction means is that they can only hear those cases that Congress has affirmatively granted them the authority to hear through statutes. So Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution sets forth the scope of the judicial power, then Congress has to dole that out to the inferior federal courts, the federal district courts. So courts that are in the federal system can only hear those cases of a kind that have been given to it. So when we have this type of case right here, which is a simple car accident, our question is, is this the kind of case that can go into federal court or state court? Well, state courts, again, are courts of general jurisdiction. They are certainly going to be able to hear a case of this kind. But that doesn't mean it can't go into federal court. It depends on whether there has been jurisdiction given in this case. So one type of jurisdiction that you're going to learn about is something called diversity. Diversity jurisdiction is a kind of jurisdiction that permits cases to get into federal court if they involve disputes between people from two different states or a state in the District of Columbia or a state in one of the territories. So, to know whether this could go to federal court, we need more information. Where are these people from? Well, let's say this person is from New York and this person is from Texas. Now we see that we have a dispute between two litigants from two different states. So this satisfies what we call the diversity of citizenship requirement. So that's one aspect of diversity jurisdiction is the citizenship. Now I've told you where they are citizens of. What you'll learn in your civil procedure class is how to determine where a litigant is a citizen of. An individual is a citizen of wherever they are domiciled, which is their place of residence, and you'll learn how to determine that. It's not necessarily where they own property. There's rules surrounding where someone is domiciled. You'll talk about that in your civil procedure class. But what if we're talking about entities? The rules are different for entities. Entities like corporations, or you have limited liability companies, you have partnerships. You have unincorporated associations. There are different rules for each of those types of entities as to how you determine where they are citizens of. And for corporations and other entities, they can be citizens of multiple states. So just as an example, corporations are citizens of where they are headquartered and every state where they are incorporated. So you may have multiple states where they will be citizens of. And you would include that in your determination of where this plaintiff, for example, if it was a corporation, is a citizen of. And you'd use those states to do the diversity of citizenship analysis. So that's going to be a big part of what you'll learn under diversity jurisdiction. Now, the mere fact that they are from two different states is necessary, but is not sufficient for there to be diversity jurisdiction. There also has to be the appropriate amount in controversy. The amount in controversy is the dollar amount that must be at stake in the lawsuit. So if you have a dispute between these two parties from two different states, but it is only for a certain low amount, let's say $5,000, 
that's going to be too low because Congress has said in the diversity statute that the minimum amount in controversy is $75,000. So if the dispute here is between two people for less than seventy-five dollars or equal to $75,000, that is too low. It must exceed $75,000. So if we put down here that we have a $100,000 dispute for various personal injuries and property damage, we now can say definitively that this dispute would qualify for jurisdiction in federal court because you have a plaintiff from New York, a defendant from Texas, and you have an amount in controversy of $100,000. Now again, as with citizenship, there is complexity to the amount in controversy determination. I had told you that it is $100,000 at stake, but there will be instances where there may be multiple claims that this person has. So they may have $50,000 in property damage, $50,000 in personal injury. Can they add those two together? Or they may have this claim arising out of this car accident, and then they may have an additional claim for another amount. Can they add those two together? So the concept of adding things together to get to the amount of controversy is called aggregation. And there are circumstances where you can and cannot do that, circumstances that you'll cover in your civil procedure course. So for this simple case, the answer is that you could bring this in state court, but you could also bring this in federal court because of the diversity jurisdiction of the federal courts. An additional way to get jurisdiction in federal court is something called federal question jurisdiction. Federal question jurisdiction means that the case arises out of a claim based on federal law, which can be based on the U.S. Constitution, federal statutes, or treaties. So if you sue someone under the Sherman Antitrust Act, that's a federal statute, you get right into federal court. No problem. It's not exclusively in federal court. Most cases under federal law you can also bring in state court. There are some, as I said earlier, that are exclusively federal. You don't need to worry about that in the basic first year course. So federal question jurisdiction will allow you to get into federal court if there is a claim based on federal law. It's that simple. There is no amount in controversy requirement for federal question cases. There used to be an amount in controversy requirement. Congress eliminated that in 1980. So there no longer is a dollar amount requirement. So no matter how low the dollar value of the case, $5,000, it doesn't matter. If it's brought under federal law, you get to go to federal court if you so choose. The next category of jurisdiction is called supplemental jurisdiction. Supplemental jurisdiction is Congress's effort to extend federal jurisdiction to claims that otherwise would not qualify for jurisdiction on their own. Now this is a complicated concept. You will cover this in your first year class. The basics of it are that when you have a claim that qualifies for jurisdiction, as we have here, and let's say we have an additional claim that go in this direction, which we'll all come to later, is called a counterclaim. But let's say this is only for $50,000. You already know that $50,000 is not high enough. It needs to be over seventy-five. dollars 
I mentioned earlier the concept of aggregation. Can you add these two together to reach the amount in controversy? The answer, generally speaking, is no, you can't. And you'll get into this in your first year course. So this claim is too low for diversity jurisdiction. It can't be aggregated with the other claim. So it doesn't qualify for federal jurisdiction on its own. However, Congress has provided by statute supplemental jurisdiction. Supplemental jurisdiction says the federal courts can hear those non-qualifying claims if they arise out of the same set of facts as claims that do qualify for federal jurisdiction. That's what supplemental jurisdiction is in a nutshell. Again, it's extremely complicated, but that's the basic thrust of what it's about. When can you get jurisdiction over non-qualifying claims? And you basically have to have claims that arise out of the same set of facts as claims that do qualify. The last type of jurisdiction that you'll cover in the first year course is called removal jurisdiction. So what removal jurisdiction involves is, now remember, I said you can bring most of these cases in state or federal court. Now that's the plaintiff's choice. The plaintiff is the first mover and they get to choose which court they want to litigate this case in. So let's say they go into state court. So it'll be filed here. But what if the defendant wants to be in federal court instead? Can they take the case from state court to federal court? The answer is yes, they can under certain circumstances. There are statutory provisions that lay out when this can be done. The principal thing that you need to determine is whether the case that was filed in state court would qualify for federal jurisdiction, which are the things that we've already discussed. So if you are the lawyer for a defendant who sued in state court, you don't want to be in state court for various reasons. You've learned about the differences between federal and state court. Judges are chosen from different areas. There's ge different geographical areas from which juries are drawn. Uh, other things that may make a local state court not favorable for your client. You want to go into federal court. You can do that if you can qualify for diversity, federal question, supplemental, etc. And there are a series of other rules that I won't get into in terms of the deadline for doing this, who has to agree to this, how this is challenged on the other end. But the, the concept of taking a case that was filed in state court and taking it into federal court is called removal. I'm going to remove this case from state court to federal court. That's a prerogative of defendants. Plaintiffs can't do this. They've made their choice. They could have gone to federal court initially if that's what they wanted to do. They chose state court. The defendant has the prerogative of removing in the uh, event that that is advantageous to their position. So this is subject matter jurisdiction in a nutshell. That is one of the initial topics that you will cover in civil procedure. Some of your professors may begin with subject matter jurisdiction. I begin with the next topic, which is personal jurisdiction. So I'm going to talk about that right now. Personal jurisdiction also relates to where can this lawsuit be brought. So we've talked about federal versus state court, a very important initial determination. But we haven't talked about geographically which federal court we're talking about. Are we talking about a federal court in Tennessee, Vermont, etc.? Where is this going to go? Personal jurisdiction is an important limitation on your choices in that regard. 
you can only bring this lawsuit in a court that would have jurisdiction over the defendant. So subject matter jurisdiction is jurisdiction over the topic of the lawsuit, over the subject of the suit. But you also have to have jurisdiction over the defendant or the defendants, if there are many defendants. Personal jurisdiction rules lay that out. So here we have a situation where there's a plaintiff from New York and a defendant from Texas. What courts might have jurisdiction over this dispute? Well, one easy one that you'll learn about is Texas. Because the defendant is from Texas, you can sue them in Texas for anything. I'm from Virginia. Anyone who has a legal dispute with me can come to Virginia and sue me here because I'm a citizen of Virginia. Again, you'll learn what it means to be a citizen of a place. You're not just a citizen of a place because you're physically located there. There's other things, subjective and objective, that go into that determination that you'll learn about. So Texas courts could hear this case. They would have jurisdiction. Would New York courts have jurisdiction over this case? Well, the defendant's not a citizen of New York. The plaintiff is, as you'll learn. It doesn't matter that the plaintiff is a citizen of the state in question. That's not going to render the defendant subject to jurisdiction there. Uh, that doesn't mean this case can't be litigated there. Under what circumstances might this case be litigated in New York and in a way that there will be jurisdiction over the defendant? If the car accident happened in New York, if the car accident happened in New York, then you can sue the defendant in New York regardless of where they're from. Same thing if we were talking about Wyoming. Can this case be brought in Wyoming? Well, not based on the citizenship of the defendant, but if the car accident occurred in Wyoming, then we don't have a problem. It can be litigated there. So personal jurisdiction is going to be based in part on citizenship, but mostly what you're going to be studying is the circumstances under which jurisdiction is based on the incident and the defendant's connection with the state through the dispute or through what happened that gave rise to the dispute, something we call specific jurisdiction. So personal jurisdiction is something that is a very important initial determination that has to be made before you can select a court where you're going to litigate a case. Now personal jurisdiction is not the end of the where. We're still dealing with this where question. Federal versus state, we've already determined that. Personal jurisdiction, I've given you some sense of that. There's another requirement and this is called venue. Now you would think we've done enough to figure this out. All right, I've got to federal court. Now I know I can go to Texas because the person's from Texas. That's not good enough. Why not? Because if we're in federal court, there are four districts in Texas. Texas has four federal districts. New York has four federal districts. California has four federal districts. Virginia has two federal districts. Some states only have one district like Delaware, Maryland. So venue is based on congressionally enacted statutes and that tells us which district among all of the 94 federal district courts we can use to bring this case. So I may have personal jurisdiction throughout Texas over this person, but I need to know which district to go to. We're talking about an individual defendant here who's from Texas. We would need to know which part of Texas he is from. Taking Virginia as an example, I live here in Charlottesville. This is in the Western District of Virginia. So if someone wants to sue me in federal court, there's citizenship in Virginia. 
So Virginia state courts and federal courts would have personal jurisdiction over me throughout Virginia. But if this person brought the lawsuit against me in Richmond federal court, that's in the Eastern District of Virginia. That's the wrong district. So my responsibility or the responsibility of my attorney is in response to that lawsuit to say, this is not the proper venue based on the statute because we don't have any connection with the Eastern District of Virginia. And you would file a motion to dismiss the case for improper venue and the case would be dismissed. Now a way to respond to that would be either to say that there are connections with the Eastern District of Virginia. So I've said I live in the Western District of Virginia. But what if this accident happened in Richmond, Virginia? Then Richmond is a proper venue because venue can be based on where I'm from or where things happened. So if things happened in the Eastern District and I live in the Western District, you can choose which one you want to sue me in. That's your choice as, a, as the plaintiff. So I can move to dismiss. The plaintiff might respond, you're wrong. Uh, the accident happened in Richmond, so we can stay here. Another way that you will be studying venue, or another attribute of venue that you're going to study, is transfer. So you may have been sued in the Eastern District of Virginia, in my example. But what if I prefer the convenience of litigating in Charlottesville? I can file a motion to transfer the case from the Eastern District to the Western District. But I can only do that if the Western District would have been an initial proper venue to begin with. So venue and transfer are important concepts that you're going to learn. So these topics collectively, personal jurisdictions, which I cover first, other professors may cover second, subject matter jurisdiction, venue and related to venue is change of venue or transfer. Those are the topics that deal with where this case is going to be litigated. You will likely spend the first half of civil procedure covering those topics. At least in my course, that's what we get right into up to the uh, fall break in October is getting finished with venue and transfer. Again, other professors may do things in different sequence. It doesn't matter. Uh, everyone takes their own uh, approach. So that's dealing with the where a lawsuit can be brought. Now another topic that comes next, typically in the sequence, is something called choice of law. Now this is going to be covered with varying degrees of detail by different professors. And I'm going to cover it only briefly, but you'll hear something called the Erie Doctrine. You'll learn more about that uh, in your first year courses. Uh, but the bottom line is, once we have started litigating this case, which law, as, as between state and federal law, are we going to apply to this dispute? And the bottom line here is, if we have a simple car accident where I'm alleging negligence, that's a state law issue. There's no federal law of negligence that's relevant to this dispute. But if I've got some procedural law that needs to be applied to this case, that's going to come from federal law. That's basically what Erie Doctrine is about. It can get much more complex than that, but the choice of law uh, aspect of the case, federal versus state, is something that you may touch on. There's another aspect of choice of law that I don't really touch on. Most civil procedure professors don't touch on or touch on it very briefly, but it has its own course, which is called conflicts of laws. And that's when you're trying to decide which state's law applies to a dispute. 
Is it Virginia law? Is it Texas law? Is it Kansas law? There are principles that are taught in their own class called conflicts uh, that you can learn. Those are typically not covered in the civil procedure class. So that's choice of law. Now, getting into the how portion of the life of a case. The next step here would be something referred to as the pleadings. The pleadings are the physical things that you have to do and file and create to initiate a case. So once you've made this determination, we're going to be in federal court, it's going to be in the Eastern District of Virginia. That's where I'm going to file my lawsuit. What does that mean? All right. What you have to do to file a lawsuit is you have to file a complaint. So you have to draft a complaint. What does that entail? You'll look at complaints in your first year civil procedure class. There are rules that govern what a complaint must say. It has to set forth the jurisdiction of the court, the claim that you are asserting, and the relief that you are seeking. And then there's rules about what level of detail is involved in that. If you don't have enough information, you can get a response that suggests, well, this complaint is too vague. I can't respond to this. Or it says something that really isn't unlawful, uh, so you haven't stated a claim. So the rules regarding what must be in a complaint are very important to understand. And just as an aside, when I keep mentioning rules, you'll learn about this body of rules called the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. So I started talking about statutes earlier, and those were enacted by Congress. But there's a separate set of rules that are promulgated by the Supreme Court, ultimately, through a series of rulemaking committees that govern the procedure in the federal courts, in addition to these statutes. And so these rules that I'm referring to that deal with the pleadings, these were statutes that dealt with this up here. Personal jurisdiction is mostly a matter of constitutional law. Venue and transfer is statutory law. Choice of law is federal common law. The Supreme Court has given us that doctrine. And then pleadings, we start to get into the federal rules. And that's dealing mainly with Rule 8. Now, when we're talking about the pleadings, as I mentioned, you start out with a complaint. But then the question is, well, what happens next? So I file this complaint. Filed it. What do I have to do with it? I can't just file it in federal court and expect things to start happening. Of course, you have to serve it on the opponent or the other uh, defendants that you are facing. So you'd have to do service of process. Service of process is governed by Rule 4. Some professors may cover service of process. Some may not. I focus on service of process principally in the advanced civil procedure course although I do touch very briefly on the basics of achieving service of process. So you've drafted this complaint, now you've served it, then the question is, how does the other person respond? Well, they can respond in one of two ways. They can do motions, or they can file what's called an answer. Or they can do both. They can file a motion, if those motions are denied, then they, move to, then they file an answer. So let's talk about the motions first. The motions that you raise, which can be pre we usually refer to these as pre-answer motions. These can be filed to raise the kinds of challenges that I was discussing earlier. So if you have a complaint filed and served on you in a court without jurisdiction, 
This is your opportunity to raise that defect, to say in response, there's no subject matter jurisdiction. You've sued me in federal court, but we're both from Texas. And this is based on state law negligence. So there's no basis for federal jurisdiction. The case should be dismissed. That would be a motion to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction under Rule 12b-1, which you will learn about. So Rule 12b has this series of seven defenses that you can raise. So 12b-2 is the motion that says, you've sued me in federal court in this state, but this court doesn't have personal jurisdiction over me. I'm not from here, and this accident didn't happen here. So I have no connection with the state. Why are we here? Motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. 12b-3, motion to dismiss for improper venue. You sued me in the Eastern District of Virginia, but we're supposed to be in the Western District of Virginia. 12b-3, motion to dismiss for improper venue. Then when we get into b-4 and b-5, now you're challenging service of process. You sent this complaint to me as an attachment to an email. Is that an appropriate method of service? It depends on the circumstances. The rules don't provide for that. But perhaps we were served internationally and this was pursuant to a judicial order that email service was appropriate. You don't have enough facts to know. But generally speaking, under the federal rules, email notice is not going to be sufficient. So if you have a ground for saying that you have served me in a way that's not permitted by the rules or in a way that's unconstitutional and due process governs the scope of uh, permissible service of process, you can move to dismiss the case for improper service of process. A big one relating to the sufficiency of the complaint, so now we've just attacked service of process, a 12b-6 attacks the sufficiency of the complaint. And it can do this in one of several ways. One traditional way is that everything that you say in the complaint, let's assume the defendant is saying this, let's assume that everything that you said in the complaint happened. I'm not disputing the facts. But the problem with that is, if you add all those facts up, the law does not regard that as a problem. So you've said, I drove my car, I went down the street, and I looked at you with a harsh look. Therefore, I'm suing for $80,000. If you're faced with something like that, of course it would be more sophisticated than that, but as an attorney, you look through it and you read through and say, what they are saying that we did, we didn't do this, but even if we did do that, that's not against the law. So the law doesn't care. So you don't need to go through a trial. You attack the complaint and you say, you have failed to state a claim that entitles you to relief. And you can get the case dismissed immediately. Another basis for challenging the complaint is that it lacks sufficient detail. And this comes from jurisprudence that the Supreme Court has given us since 2007 that you'll study in your civil procedure classes. But basically it says there's got to be enough facts there that show that you have plausible entitlement to relief. So defendants can respond and say, well, there's not enough information here. You say you were fired from your job and it was because of your age, therefore you want compensation. But I don't see any facts in here that are backing that up. So unless you're going to put that information in there, I think this complaint needs to be dismissed uh, for failing to state a claim. That's a little more complicated, and you'll, again, you'll talk about that in your first year course. So those are some of the pre-answer motions that you can use as a basis for challenging a complaint. The next step then, if we've gone past these pre-answer motions, is the answer. And the answer is when you respond as the defendant. 
And there are different types of responses that you can have. The main thing are admissions and denials. So a complaint is going to be a series of allegations. You did A, you did B, you did C, therefore I re, um, uh, request this, these damages. So your first paragraph might say, I admit I did A. Paragraph two, I deny I did B. Paragraph three, I admit I did C. So you admit and deny things. Now if you admit everything, then the plaintiff is going to be able to respond with a motion under 12C, which is a motion for judgment on the pleadings. I've said they did this, they admitted it, I win. There's no point to having a trial. Uh, the facts have been conceded and the law is on my side. So that would be a maneuver that the plaintiff could employ. All right, so in answer, you have admissions and denials, but also in an answer, you're going to have something called affirmative defenses, which you'll learn about later. But an example of an affirmative defense would be in this situation, the plaintiff is suing this driver, excuse me, this defendant uh, for a car accident. If the defendant thinks that the plaintiff was negligent somehow in this interaction or in causing this accident, that would be something called contributory negligence. Well, in some states, seven states, I believe, they recognize contributory negligence as a complete bar to relief. So if the defendant is able to prove that the, the, the plaintiff was contributory negligent, then that can defeat the plaintiff's claim. That's called an affirmative defense. That has to be raised in the answer or it's waived. So affirmative defenses are something your attorney or you as the attorneys would want to consider in your answer. The last thing that you can have in your answer, well, one of the last things is claims. So I've already drawn up here another claim. This claim would be asserted in the context of an answer, and it's called a counterclaim. And we're going to talk more about counterclaims and other types of claims when I get to the next topic, which is called joinder. But in your answer, that's where you would assert additional claims that you want to have in the case. So if the defendant is your client and is being sued, and your client says, well, wait a minute. I was injured in this accident, too, and I think it was the plaintiff's fault. Shouldn't the defendant then be suing the plaintiff? Why is the defendant the defendant? Well, the plaintiff was the first mover. Just because the plaintiff was the first mover doesn't mean the defendant doesn't get to take affirmative action against the plaintiff. Now, they are stuck with doing that here, potentially, because there are rules that compel them to assert this in this action, as opposed to going somewhere else and doing it. That gets complicated. Uh, but they will typically respond with a counterclaim, saying, well, you think I'm at fault, I think you're at fault, and I have injuries. So this is not just an affirmative defense. An affirmative defense is when you are defeating the plaintiff's claim based on something that the plaintiff did wrong. A counterclaim is, I have injuries that you are responsible for, therefore you owe me money. So you would assert that counterclaim here. And as I said earlier, supplemental jurisdiction is something you would need to get that in there if it's only $50,000. Other things that you'll talk about in the pleading topic are amendments. So remember earlier I said if you don't assert an affirmative defense in your answer, it's waived. Well, you might be able to fix that by amending your answer. We're going to look at that in the civil procedure course. Most of you should cover that. That's covered by Rule 15. I want to fix my complaint. Maybe someone files a motion in response to the complaint saying there's not enough detail here. Well, can the plaintiff then say, well, then I'll just fix it. I'm going to file an amended complaint. All right, so there are rules that allow you to do amended complaints without the permission of the court. Sometimes you need the court's permission. That's the topic of amendments. There's advanced concepts in the amendment space where you may want to add things to the complaint after the statute of limitations has expired. 
That goes to this when. When do you have to bring a case? Usually there's a deadline. Sometimes it's two years after the incident, sometimes it's three years, etc. What if you file a case right before the two-year deadline? Now you're going along and discovering, you find, uh-oh, I sued the wrong person. I was supposed to sue John, but I sued Mike. So I want to file an amended complaint to substitute John. Can that relate back to before the two-year period? It can under certain circumstances. So this is something else which you'll talk about in Rule 15 coverage, which deals with amendments. A last piece of the pleadings topic which we're dealing with here is something called Rule 11. And this is a rule that imposes a requirement to be truthful in pleading. So obviously you can't just make stuff up. If you make things up in a complaint and the defendant calls you out on it, they can file a motion for sanctions under Rule 11. And that's punishment that the court will visit on the attorney and the parties and the law firm that's responsible for the violation. So you'll study what the requirements are of Rule 11 and the means that you have to use to get sanctions from the court to punish people who have violated it. Joinder is the next topic that's typically covered. And this deals with joinder of claims and joinder of parties. So I mentioned earlier a counterclaim up there. That's what we have in this initial uh, lawsuit. And I'll redraw it down here. So we have a plaintiff versus his defendant. This is our initial claim of $100,000. Now we have a counterclaim of $50,000. All right, well, what if the plaintiff wants to sue the defendant for something else besides this car accident? They may have another dispute that's unrelated to the car accident. And it's just a coincidence, but they have some sort of uh, breach of contract dispute. So, and let's say this is only for $50,000. So now you have multiple questions here. First, as always, is there jurisdiction over this $50,000 breach of contract claim, which has nothing to do with this? Now remember I said for supplemental jurisdiction, claims have to be related to each other. These claims are not related to each other. Does that mean there's no jurisdiction over that claim? No, it doesn't. Why not? It goes way back to something I mentioned at the beginning, aggregation. A plaintiff can add however many claims they have, related or unrelated to each other, to get the, the jurisdictional amount in controversy. So this plaintiff can actually add 100 to, to 50 to get $150,000 in controversy. So even though it's unrelated and it's insufficient on its own through aggregation, it qualifies for diversity jurisdiction. So no jurisdictional problems there. The other question is, can they join this in this lawsuit? So they're not just a jurisdictional issue, Joinder. What allows me to bring two completely unrelated claims in one case? They have nothing to do with each other. Not going to be the same witnesses, not the same evidence. Can you do this? The answer is yes, because the rules of civil procedure expressly provide for it. That's rule 18A. This is a rule, that's rule 13B, if it's related, if it's 13A, 13B, if it's unrelated, you're going to learn all these things in civil procedure. So joinder covers claim joinder, counterclaims, then it can get even more complex. Let's put another plaintiff down here. So now we've got P1 and P2. This guy was from New York. We had Texas over here. Now we're going to put another New Yorker here. Now why would we have two plaintiffs? So this might be the driver of the car, this could be the passenger that was with the driver. She was injured too, right? So can they bring a lawsuit together or do they have to split up? There's a rule that governs this, this is rule 20, so you're going to study this. So this person might have a claim here, 
What if their claim is only for $50,000? Well, that's too low. Can you add it? No. Maybe their supplemental jurisdiction. You'll learn about that. What happens when it gets a little spicier and they start doing this? All right? Now, we were friends. We were both in the same car together. Now you want to sue me. Now, you're going to learn about this in professional responsibility. You would think these two can have the same attorney. Well, as long as their interests are aligned, yes. But someone needs to advise this person that, wait a minute, what if it's not the defendant's fault? What if it was the driver's fault? If you don't sue the driver in this action, you're going to be precluded from doing so separately later. So you really need your own attorney, and you need to assert a claim against them now. All right, so you're going to do that here. Again, $50,000 too low. That gets into all the jurisdictional stuff we talked about earlier. This is a joinder issue. Can that be joined? That's its own rule. This is 13G. So there's a complete series of rules, and you're going to know all of this. All of these different ways that you can assert claims in different directions has its own rule that allows it. If there's not a rule that allows it, you can't do it. The last part that you usually learn in the basic civil procedure course is third-party joinder, where you open up a new frontier and you have a third-party defendant. So this may be, for example, an insurance company. You've sued the driver. The driver needs to be indemnified by the insurance company. So they can bring them into the suit, which is called impleter, under Rule 14, if that rule is satisfied to do so. It gets much more complex. In my advanced civil procedure class, we go to the next level where there are outsiders who insinuate themselves into the action. There are non-parties that the court drags into the action. And then there are people who can assert claims all around them uh, just because they're in possession of property that many people are claiming. You can also have class actions. So here I've got one and two. What if it's one through N? We have 100 or 1,000 plaintiffs. Can they join together? Those are complex joinder concepts. I cover in the advanced course. Some of your professors may cover this in the basic course. The next area is discovery. I think most of you should have heard of discovery, particularly if you were paralegals before. Discovery deals with the compelled information exchange that happens in litigation once it gets underway. Once we've gotten past the pleading, now the plaintiff says, I want all this stuff. The defendant says, no, I'm not going to give it to you. That's not really what they say. They're supposed to say, I'm going to give you uh, what you're entitled to under the rules. Uh, but if you ask for more than you're entitled to, then the defendant is going to say, no, I'm not going to give those things to you. So you talk about the scope of discovery, how broad is it. You know, if we have a dispute for over some type of fraud that occurred in the past three years, and you submit a discovery request for the past 10 years of documents, you could object potentially as the defense lawyer for that company saying, well, you're entitled to three years, but not 10 years. We're not going to let you get things that are outside of the scope. So you have scope issues with the uh, discovery topic. The methods of discovery are something that you'll study. So there's depositions, document requests, interrogatories, requests for admissions, expert uh, testimony, subpoenas of non-parties. It goes on, but you'll learn about all those different methods. There's also protected materials. So this is where you would study, in part, the attorney-client privilege. You should cover that in professional responsibility, but it's important to know about it to respond to your discovery request. If somebody requests something, you have to look through all of your client's material to see if there's anything that's privileged. And if it's privileged, you have to pull it out and create this document called a privilege log that says, here's all the stuff I'm not giving you because it's privileged for these reasons. And here's a description of these documents. So you have to learn about privilege to be able to do that 
uh, when you start working as an attorney. And then there's the issue of sanctions in discovery. Rule 11 I mentioned earlier is for sanctions in the pleading context. Discovery, Rule 11 doesn't apply to discovery because discovery has its own sanctioning provision. So you would learn about that as well. For example, you know, if your client is sued and they start destroying all the documents that show that they are responsible for what they're being sued for, which has happened, that's a discovery violation that can be punished. By up to and including dismissal of the case or default judgment, uh, other types of sanctions that can be imposed. So you'll learn about those things in the discovery topic. The case starts winding down in most cases when we get to something called summary judgment. That's at the end of discovery where we've got all the facts on the table and one party looks at the facts and says, there's really not a material factual dispute here. We all, the facts show one version of what happened. And there is no evidence to support a conflicting version. Therefore, we don't need a trial. And why don't we need a trial? The only point of trials is to resolve factual disputes. That's what a jury does. It says, this person is not telling the truth, that person is. Or this document tells me what happened, and I'm going to disregard that document. That's what a jury does. But if you get through discovery and say, there's only evidence in support of this version of the story. There is no evidence in support of the other version. Then you move for summary judgment. You say, I don't need a trial. I win right now on the facts and the law. And the court can resolve it without there being a jury. The vast majority of cases are not resolved by trials, even though that's what is visualized in the popular media. That's less than 2% of the cases are resolved in the federal system through trial. Most are resolved on pre-trial, what most people call technicalities, but the things that we've been describing as you're going to see, especially as attorneys, are not technicalities. They're not technicalities if you're the defense lawyer. It's the way you can win for your client without getting into the merits. And you may not want to get into the merits if you have a client who did what they're being alleged of doing. But using all of these procedural maneuvers is the main mechanism that defense attorneys use to dispose of cases. And it's very effective because plaintiffs, lawyers, make mistakes. So if you're going to be a plaintiff's lawyer, you need to master these things so you're not making those mistakes. You get it right to the right place so your defense attorney is not going to have any choice but responding on the merits. So that's why this is, these aren't just technicalities. They're very important to master. So that's summary judgment. If summary judgment doesn't happen, then you go to a trial. I don't cover trials in civil procedure. Some professors do. The main way that trials are discussed in the civil procedure context is about the jury trial right. So the trial part of civil procedure, to the extent that you cover it at all, is not going to deal with trial practice or trial advocacy. That's its own course you'll take in the later years if you're interested in that. This deals with, well, when do I have a right to a jury and when do I not have a right to a jury? How big does a jury have to be? How do we pick a jury? Jury verdicts, instructing a, a jury, challenging the, the verdict of a jury. Those are things uh, that deal, uh, are covered in the trial part. Then you have post-trial motions. And these are places where you can say, uh, we've had this trial. I presented my evidence. The plaintiff presented their evidence in front of the jury. But the plaintiff didn't really prove its case. So I should win. You shouldn't even give it to the jury. That's judgment for, as a matter of law. Or the jury comes back with a verdict. And it's ridiculous. The jury says, yeah, the plaintiff was right, but instead of $100,000, we are going to give them a dollar. Well, if the evidence that they accepted shows that the damages are much more, the judge can say, well, that shocks the conscience, to use the language uh, in the case law. 
a dollar is not an appropriate amount, so I'm going to order a new trial. We're going to have a new trial and start this over. So you can have new trials. Uh, you can have relief from judgment. There's all these different post-trial motions that you can lodge after a trial has happened. Then you have an appeal. And everyone should be familiar with the concept of an appeal. All right, now we're done with the trial court. So I want to take this up to the next level, to the circuit court, and raise different errors uh, that, were, uh, uh, that occurred in the trial court and see what happens. You don't go to the appeal to relitigate the facts. The jury has already made its determination on the facts. Couple final issues after appeal. You've got enforcement. Most of us, I don't think, cover enforcement. I don't cover enforcement of judgments in civil procedure. But once you have a judgment, it's not self-executing unless the defendant voluntarily says here. But if the defendant is resistant or they, are, they have assets in different places in different jurisdictions that are hard to reach, you're going to have to initiate a new action to try to collect on the judgment. So that would be a separate enforcement action. The final topic, which most of us cover, is called preclusion. And preclusion, I alluded to it earlier, and that is the binding effect of a prior judgment on a future case. So let's say in this situation, the defendant doesn't do this. They don't sue the, defend the plaintiff on a counterclaim for $50,000. Okay, well then the defendant wins, plaintiff loses, plaintiff collects nothing. Now the defendant later wants to come out and say, okay, I'm going to go to court now and I'm going to sue you. So this is case one, and this is case number two. Defendant won in the first case, but sought no affirmative relief, so the defendant does not have to pay this. Well, now I'm going to sue you in state court for $50,000. Can the defendant do that? The answer is no. This is preclusion doctrine. This is claim preclusion, or something that you'll learn is called race judicata. And that means that the thing has already been adjudicated. That's what race judicata means. You had your chance up here. There are rules that say that if you have a related suit asserted against you or a claim asserted against you, you don't have a choice. It's a compulsory counterclaim. That's what it's referred to in Rule 13a. And by not asserting your compulsory counterclaim in the initial action, you've waived it or you forfeited that claim. That's a big problem if the attorney who did that was unaware of how procedure works. The client's not going to know this. You have to know it. That's why you're studying this. All right, so again, people are going to think about, especially lay people, that's a bunch of technicalities. They don't understand. All right, and this is why people hate lawyers, because we talk about all these details <laughs> that no one else cares about. We haven't even talked about, well, whose fault was it? Was it his fault or her fault? Or I'm hurt and I want to get recovery. You're not going to get to that. You're not ever going to get to that. You're going to be dealing with all of this stuff. So if you are the attorney for the defendant, you need to know, I've been, my client has been sued for this. I need to respond, or at least tell the client. If you don't file this counterclaim right now, you're not going to be able to file it ever. That's claim preclusion. There's a more complex concept called issue preclusion uh, that you'll typically cover at the very end of the class I do uh, at the end of my semester. So that is an overview of the whole thing in a nutshell. You're not going to necessarily cover all of those things. I cover most, little more than half of that. Uh, in the advanced civil procedure course, I try to cover the rest. So we're not taking any questions. There's no time for that. Nobody wants to ask any questions. <laughs> all right? So that's it. Go take your break. <laughs>